Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Inner Sections, where our aspiration is to allow us to explore our full potential as individuals, as teams, as organizations, as nations, as humanity, as the world at large, by dissolving these boundaries that sometimes just restrict us from seeing the full possibilities in moments and in life. The boundaries, for example, between East and West, between the inner and the outer, between profit and purpose, between science and spirituality and what have you. And it is tremendous joy for me today to have in our midst someone who has been a path-breaking force, a pioneer in so many regards and dissolving so many boundaries in the course of her own career, as well as in the ideas that she proffers up for humankind. So let me introduce Nilofer to you first, just through her background. Nilofer is an expert on innovation and one of the top-ranked business thinkers of our time. She has been, in the early part of her life, a technology professional with storied contributions that she's made in the area of sales and channel and marketing and business development at uh, some of the big names in the tech field, like Adobe, Autodesk, and Apple. She has gone on to have a prolific career in sharing ideas and thoughts through very, very persuasive writing in her books, such as The New How and The Power of Onlyness, which is uh, one that we will do a deep dive on very soon. She's been active on the speaker circuit as well, giving TED talks, including on this theme of onlyness. She's widely acclaimed as a top thinker in the field of management in both theory and practice. She has also been regarded as a really active and smart voice on Twitter and uh, conducts workshops on the future of work in the social media era that we live in, on this capacity for us to light up everyone in our organization to their fullest potential that some of these very storied names and organizations has been featured in some of the leading media as well. And here is a quote from Nilofer just to start us off. Seemingly powerless people fueled by the deepest and sometimes unnameable sense of meaning, find those who share a cause or purpose and act together without needing to be told what to do, to make a dent. And on that note, let me invite Nilofa in our midst. Uh, Nilofa, thank you so much for joining us today. So glad to be here, Hitendra. This is such a beautiful quote that I just read from you because we've lived in a period in history in the last couple of centuries or so that was so hierarchical. So there are a few people who know it and who get it. And then there's the rest of the world. And you're out there to turn that wisdom around on its head. Yeah, I started writing about this idea of loneliness and the whole notion that each of us has a spot in the world, only one stands. And from that spot, we can add value, right? Like such a it's the oldest message, right? It's it through every piece of literature, spiritual literature that's existed has said each human being has rights and dignity. And then you go to everyday life and very few people have rights and dignity. And I've been trying to figure out how to actually change the world of work so that we can recenter, not on the capacity to create value for other people, but the actual ability for each of us to add the value that only one can. And when we do this, I actually believe it'll lead to performance also, but it's a centering quite differently. It's not about Bezos or Musk or whatever, you know, making their top dog dollars. It's about each of us being able to add that value. Only one can. And it's so tectonic that it's sometimes people kind of call me crazy and uh, or radical or all these other words. But I think it's the deepest truth, deepest calling that each of us has. And so I'm hoping actually that we can actually find a way just to make this shift because it's what we all want anyway. You know, I'm just being reminded as you say that um, about the story that Mandela shares in his autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom. And, and here's this guy who's like this icon, right, for the world and who's done this amazing work 
in trying to take South Africa into a more wholesome, more democratic, more non-racial kind of future and build these bridges, even with the folks who are otherwise putting the apartheid system out there. And he talks about how this one moment where he was in his more militant kind of mood of like needing to change South Africa more through aggression before he was arrested, put into prison for 27 years and came out a reformed and different person. Uh, that this one time he had a gun in his hand, a friend of his in his backyard, and he said, uh, you know, why don't you shoot that bird? Let me see what you've learned in your kind of training to be like a guerrilla warfare kind of guy. And so Madonna was like, of course, I can shoot that bird. And he aims the gun at the bird and he shoots the bird and she falls. And then this little child who was the friend he was staying with, uh, he, he bursts into tears and he mm -hmm. says, how could you do that? Because now do you see how much pain you have caused the mother of this bird? And I said, like, I just melted. And I realized in that moment that this child has more compassion than me. I mean, I imagine like that moment must have been one of several catalysts that actually got Mandela to become the Mandela that we know him to be. And I think of what you just said about how every one of us, every one of us, that everyone doesn't even have to first turn into an adult before they can have impact. Here was this little child in that moment having impact. Yeah, by the way, uh, you know, we started talking personally before we jumped into the session. Can I share a personal story? We said, we'd, we said we'd wander where the work conversation took us. My son's middle name is Mandela. I named him that exactly for the story. That's so funny that you tell this story because we conceived him in South Africa and we were looking for some heritage story about who he would be because, you know, each of us has an inheritance that we bring into the world and a, a name is part of your inheritance that a parent gives. And, uh, and I wanted to think of what I wanted my own child to be able to do in the world. And, um, and the whole notion that we can bring peace and change, not because of violence, not because we're pushing on someone, but because we're pulled into the world in a very particular way. And that's the shift I think we're trying to get to. Because, you know, by the way, when you push on something, someone's going to push back. And I'm much more curious by the questions that we can ask that are brand new questions that can say, how can we do this in a brand new way that doesn't require us? I'm not asking people who are, you know, into white supremacy to join me. I am asking those of us, though, who want to do change to recognize the actual barriers that are there, and not to push against sort of old, but to create the new. And it takes us having more, not just inheritance, but imagination to do that. When did you come across this quest, right, to um, want to really light a spark in everyone's very special onlyness, as you're calling it, and then you coined the term as well. Can you just talk a little bit about the inception of that? Can you maybe also define the term for us a little bit so we can have our audience also wrap their minds around it? Sure. So let me do definition first, and then we'll back up into story. So onlyness, each of us stands in a spot in the world only one stands in. And from that place, distinctly true to one person is how we add our value to the world. I defined it as both both history and experience, as well as visions and hopes. And the reason that I say, what is that place of power only one stands? If you center correctly, then you can tap that capacity. And the reason I defined it with both essentially the past and the future is sometimes we can imagine something as possible, even if we can't describe it fully to someone else, even if we can't put it into words and tagline it and all that stuff, but we can still imagine something as possible that still makes it true to us. And so I wanted it not just to be a definition of archaeology to say, this is what I was born into, whether it's by class or sex or race or whatever things that we're born into, but a combination of who we've been and who we're becoming. And in that place, which is about meaning, um, it's certainly about power, certainly about self-authority and self-authoring, about voice, but also about how we belong to the world. So it is all those things. So that's onlyness. 
definition. I say it really succinctly when I say it's that place of power only one stands in. And then how I came to it, there are times when I sit there and go, did I come up with it when I came up with it? Or is it like a deeper truth? And a, and a colleague of mine, someone I work with all the time, is a professor out of the University of Queensland. And he says, you know, if you read now all your body of work, if you read everything you've been writing, writing since 2009, 2010, you've been saying the same thing over and over again, that each of us counts that ideas can come from anywhere, that the ability to connect those ideas across networks is what creates capacity of a group versus the capacity of an individual and group power is what creates change. He goes, actually, you can see the thread. So I think that's always funny to see how we can find our own thread if somebody else points it out to us. But I coined the term in 2012, actually uh, writing an article uh, that turned out to be Steve Jobs' eulogy for Harvard Business Review. Um, they reached out and said, you know, he's passed today. And of course, I'd worked with him. And they said, would you be willing to do something? And I said, yes. And, and the conversation I'd been having with my editor was, you know, we can see the genius of Steve Jobs so easily and we celebrate it widely, but we don't recognize that same genius is true to Ashoka and true to Rubina and true to each of us has genius. And I was trying to then with the concept of onlyness say, actually recognize that independently of color, race, gender, age, all the ways in which isms stop us from listening to people. Each of us has that creative innate capacity. And the question then isn't that, it's whether or not we know how to tap it. I want to unpack this a little bit more with you. And then I want to come back to Steve Jobs, because uh, he's a fascinating figure, of course. I'm hearing you say maybe like a couple of things. One is that there is this almost like common ground that we all stand on, which is just like this capacity for like creative spark, that the very special something that we can offer. And yet you're also saying that it's not a me too in terms of, uh, you know, us seeking to mimic others. It's something where on that common ground we stand, but we're also, it's like unity and diversity. You know, there's that diversity aspect of it, which is each of us has gotten unique life experiences, a unique DNA that brings a certain unique possibility to the relationship between us and the present moment and what we can offer. Can I just take one word? So English is actually not my first language. And this is um, th this is why I often look upwards because I think, oh, am I using the right word? So um, I'm a total word geek. If, I, if you look at my bookcases, you'll actually find a bunch of dictionaries. So I'll sometimes just flip through different languages and different dictionaries. So unique, when you use the word, it is always relative. So I can be, for example, a woman in a corporate boardroom and almost always I could be called unique. But what is being characterized quite often is the fact that I am the only one, which interestingly enough is centering the room. And so I don't use the word unique because what I never want to do is have any of us understand each other in contrast to someone else, because that's like saying, well, you're an idiot and so I'm smart or I'm an idiot and you're smart, right? Whichever way we might compare, it's to say each of us is distinctly ourselves. And it's a singular but not separate truism. So it's the rain falling hits a pond, singular but not separate. So we're trying to get to that characterization of what is it that each of us has to bring that beautiful genius inside each of us and uh, genius both being of the place. Remember, genius was always the notion of genius was in the original Latin was it lives within you. It's a spirit that dwells in you, the meaning that dwells in you and is always changing. But it is true to a place. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're trying to get to. Each of us is that genius. And uh, and the question is, do we understand, therefore, our own contribution capacity 
not in contrast to someone else, but the capacity that is true to each of us. Ah, that's beautiful. I am a mathematician at heart. You know, that was my first passion. And so I'm always trying to kind of look through, look at things through that lens and try to kind of like figure out the elements of the equation. And I would also love to hear from some of you as to if you are to articulate your onlyness, what would that be for you? What is it that you, I mean, I don't know, Nilofa, did you think that that's a worthy question? How would you ask it? Um, I do. I think each of us has some capacity and is always championing something. I think sometimes we find it hard to name. And then we think, oh, since we can't name it, it must not be true, right? And I'm like, oh, if he, if so often I say to people, don't worry about the lingo of it. Just see if you can get a sense of it. Because it's often, by the way, it's always changing yeah. too, right? If you ask me, what is my meaning in this moment? It's very specific to what is it I can add value on here, right? I mean, it's always true to my larger through line, but it's more tailored, I guess, you know, in this moment. And so just to give people that context of you don't have to get, it's not a branding exercise, like, ooh, I care about this. It's a, it's a sense, right? It's a flow, yeah, in the moment. How are you feeling about that? And yeah, good, good, good. Thank you. One of the places where I feel, you know, for me, there's been a very meaningful step in, in, in growing in the last few years has been recognizing that some of that specialness, and I want just to get your reactions to that, some of the specialness can come at times, not just uh, from, you know, from the things that have gone well in our life or the things that others uh, may, may count as like our special gifts, but sometimes, you know, quite the opposite as well. And I'll give you one example. I mean, one of the people who, for me, really stands out is Candice Leitner. I don't know if you know, know of her, but she... Um, she started this organization called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which has had tremendous impact in making our highways just so much safer, you know, in the United States and ultimately creating a movement that is impacting many other parts of the world. And take, be more responsible, guys, like in not driving drunk and, you know, all of that, right? And so quite a force. Now, if you go back in her history, she had a son who got hit by a car mm-hmm. and had like an accident that, you know, through that, which uh, damaged his skull. And some. she ultimately lost her teenage daughter to drunk driving. And that is what catalyzed, you know, this in her, this hunger, this desire to want to see change in the world, you know, in this area. Yeah. And uh, it's just incredible. What a heroic journey she and her family have been on to help advance this cause, of course, partly by finding other kindred spirits, other mothers who had also lost their own children, which is part of your teaching as well, this idea of finding others, you know, to proliferate your idea, right, to people and then get your power from there. We want to come back and talk about that. But I'm almost sometimes thinking that, and this is where I come back to Steve Jobs, you know, he once said, life sometimes doesn't make sense like in the moment, but you have to be able to look back and then connect the dots. It's when you look back, you sometimes you'll find, oh, that's why this happened to me or that happened to me or that happened to me because it's made me who I am today. It's the Leonard Cohen line about there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And I think most of us would like to be more perfect than that. And more perfect meaning we wish we were raised a certain way, middle class. We wish we maybe didn't have an alcoholic father. We wish we, you know, if I think about all the stories people tell me, they are all stories where they wish somehow this trauma or loss or suffering wasn't true. And yet it is the genesis uh, of their own insight. And it can be big like that, like, you know, alcoholic parents or divorce or whatever it is that's been a form of loss. But it can also be, you know, somebody I was working with recently uh, in a consultation was saying to me that their 
they had had their mother be in a like a checkout line, very, very simple moment, checkout line, being able to pay for something, wanted to open up like a credit card to be able to do it and couldn't because she was a woman. So this was in the 70s, just dating all of us. I don't know if people remember that in the 1970s, women cannot open up their credit card by their own self. They needed a husband signature. And she remembers how powerless her mother felt in that moment of not being able to be independent and make decisions and so on. And so then um, she doesn't like the story about herself because it makes her feel very vulnerable and raw and she doesn't like the story. It turns out to be hugely formative because ever since then, she always notices in any room who's the underdog, who is being passed over because of some rule or right that is not being given to the person. And so I said, isn't it interesting that to you, you're ashamed of this story, right? Because you're like, oh, your mother should have been able to do this thing and you hated how she felt you've internalized how she felt so think about what that teaches you about you think about how empathetic that makes you think about the fact that as a child you noticed something that was going on that was an injustice right just because of gender not being able to do the same thing a man can do and then notice how you've turned that into the way in which you lead so isn't that interesting that you're actually trying to deny it as if somehow it's not good and yet how it has served as everything for you like it has been a juice for you and she had actually like taken this feeling and wanted to hide it and as soon as we we're able to bring it into light, then also to go, okay, what is the negative of that? So just to own it gives you a different sort of feeling of authority over it, right? Because now you're self-authoring your own life and saying, oh, what does it mean for me? So what meaning do I just ascribe to it, describe to it, take from it? And and one of the things she realized is often she would coddle people because she was trying so hard to hide this part of her and she didn't acknowledge it. She was also coddling people because she didn't know how to own the gift. So she was using it like because she was trying so hard to hide it, it was using her instead of her using it. So the minute she could bring it into the light, she could go, oh, okay, so I am deeply empathetic. I really care about the underdog, but I also have to care about the business and not make not care so much about people that we don't get to performance. And that means not calling people. So actually, and what I was trying to tell her was then believe in the capacity of the person. So if you say to someone, you know what, that doesn't work for us, let's find a way for it to work for us, the, the business unit. And she goes, oh, that would change everything. So now all of a sudden, this liability of hers became a learned asset. And then she could actually understand both the sharpness and the places where she had to work on it so that she could apply it really well. And this is the shift. But it's until you can own the crack, you can't see where the light comes in and then maybe how to use that light more precisely in the darkness. Yeah, that's so powerful. So beautiful. Uh, what a great metaphor about the lights and the cracks. Let's maybe move on from the individual to the collective, since mm -hmm. that is a key part of your thinking here as well, right? Um, you emphasize the individual, but you also emphasize the inextricable connect that we have, right, with the, the world around us and how that is actually what allows us to fully manifest the possibilities in our uniqueness. Can you speak a little bit about that? I, I found that very, very beautiful. Sure. Rather than piece, yeah. And probably the most important line I wrote in the book of the power of onlyness is that the very definition of individual, and this is, you know, I'm an econ major. So talking about, you know, you're a math person, right? So always looking for the equation and things you said, and I'm an econ major, and I'm always looking for the way in which metrics define value. And one of the ways in which I understood individual for my whole growing up life was it's you and then what you do. So raised in American culture since I was four and a half, fully embracing the notion of individualism, you can do everything. But if you actually look at the word individual, it is the smallest measure of the human 
kind. So it is always a connected you. You cannot actually isolate an individual as separate from the group in which it belongs. By, by definition, it is the smallest measure of the larger whole. So when I say separate, singular, but not separate, I'm saying that. When I'm even using the word individual, I am saying, who are you a part of? Whom To whom do you belong? Because that group is also what your shared meaning kind of connects you to. So onlyness follows that same beautiful logic, which is what is so true to you that is also the part that is the connected you. And sometimes when I think about that, like different analogies come to mind. So, you know, you are a puzzle piece, part of a larger puzzle. Uh, the single raindrop is part of the larger ocean. Uh, and because I'm a quilter, uh, and I have been for 20 plus years, I often also see it as what is that thread that only you see that as you pull on it, you know, it catches your light. And as you pull on it, you're actually afraid that things will unravel because you know you're kind of separating things out but actually as you pull on a thread it connects you to the fabric of the world that's my favorite one but so choose whichever beautiful metaphor you want but it's always the connected you and the question is how are you connected so if you're connected hierarchically then you're going to think about yourself as peon or boss right if you're connected by like a vocational training you might say i'm an accountant you're in marketing in your math, I'm an econ. Um, and think of those um, ways. Uh, if you're connected by social status, then you're going to say, I'm a woman, I'm, you're a man. Then, So that you start to see difference. The connected you, when you start to define it based on your own meaning, is to find that thread that you pull on that then connects you to the world. But it is in ways that are independent of the social status and organizational hierarchy. It is that place, that genius, right? The place that is one's own. I want to explore a little bit of paradox with you here because, uh, you know, typically we, we tend to think about a way to get more connected by conforming, by seeing what's popular and making sure that we can step into that space so that we can also belong, right? We compromise ourselves in order to belong, but we belong in this way that is part not yeah. whole. And so to your point about spiritual connection, right? Um, what is the way in which you're not partial in belonging, but wholeness is a part of that belonging. So integration within and then with, so that as we work on this common thing of it, the integrity is all the way through. We had in my Columbia class earlier today itself, actually, a force of nature. Magda is a um, very successful business executive and also doing some great anti-corruption work in, in South Africa. And, you know, having made it to like the richest woman in South Africa, among other kind of medals uh, that she has, uh, including the social impact work, which is beautiful. One of the key messages she was emphasizing to our like success driven, very ambitious Columbia MBAs was that don't desire money beyond like the basic, basic level. And if you do the right things, it'll come to you. It'll come to you. Now, our conversation is not as much about money, but I think about, again, that social connection and that sense of being part of a larger milieu and having people be drawn to wanting to connect with you, befriend you, follow you, like you, et cetera. And I'm thinking maybe the same idea applies there too in the way I think you you offer, right? Which is don't seek to be popular on the basis of what's popular out there. But when you find that very distinctive piece of who you are at yourself, you will naturally draw in a very integrated way and a very whole person way, just the right people. And then it'll be such a deeper, more authentic draw, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when I wrote The Power of Loneliness, I had this misconception. And let me let me share it with you because I think it's helpful here. I had this misconception that people already understood what they were doing right. And so all I had to do was study, all I had to do um, was study the sort of 20 or 30 examples of people who were using networked power um, to affect change and that this was 
would then lead me to insight. You know, like I could just write that, decode that, write it down, be done. It turns out I ended up researching 300 examples and because to get to the 20 that I ended up writing about because nobody and I'm saying this very boldly now I probably should have said it when the book came out nobody actually understood what they were doing and one of the stories that um, I'm going to share then is from the book and I'm sure he won't mind me sharing it because Franklin Leonard who started this organization called the blacklist you know coining off the McCarthy sort of term that once exiled storytellers he was using it in the same way to include storytellers and what he did is one you know he's a relative low peon in Hollywood and he's unable to get his bosses to approve of stories like Hunger Games and because they say female driven action doesn't work that was a direct quote and um, so he's like I must be really shitty at my job right so he thinks he must be wrong because of course his bosses are so rich and he ends up writing an email to about 80 some people he had met in his first year at Hollywood asked them to participate in the helping him find better stories and in return he'll change back that same data back to them and so that's the give get give me your best story that you've seen the last year um, that hasn't been put into production I'll share you back the master list of what everybody creates this list goes wide and when and I asked Franklin, now this is like five years later, and you know, some of the movies have become award-winning movies and making money and so on. And I say to him, hey, Franklin, so what do you think you did right? He says, well, we just shone a bigger light on it. I remember sitting there going, and, and we were on the phone. I go, that's not it. You know, and I was like trying to figure out how do I say to this guy who I really respect, that's not it. And because I said to him, I actually like waited, thought about it, came back and I said, listen, if that was it, Spielberg would have done it. He had all the money in the world, right? Anyone could have done it because they actually want exactly the outcome come you want and but they were asking a different question than Franklin was asking and in fact I rushed even as I said it to you what question he asked because he rushed it to me so I'm doing that intentionally and so if the question was what movie will make the most amount of money you get a certain answer he asked a different question which is what story do you love and that change of question changes what people respond by which changed by the way how then you end up stack ranking everything and it allowed a different metric in place which by the way aligned everyone in the same direction. So now it's not the boss thinking, gosh, I know which thing makes money. It's now a what story resonates the most, right? It's a very different conversation you're starting to have. What's original? What's a distinct story? Uh, is it great storytelling itself? And I'm sure people can Google how phenomenally successful the blacklist has become because even in since the four or five years since I did that research, it's, it's become incredibly well known. Franklin Leonard, an unbelievably strong, you know, part of a community now to do screenwriting and change the Hollywood thing. Didn't know any of that at the time. At one point, in fact, he's thinking about quitting like a year or two into it. He's thinking about quitting because he's like, oh, I kind of did what I needed to do. I have my career. It's all good. You know, going to park it. And somebody's on the phone with him trying to convince him to pick, who was it? Oh, Leonardo DiCaprio for a film. And he's on this like muckety muck phone call and getting told, you know, you got to put Leonardo in this film. And the guy says to Leonard, Franklin Leonard, guy says to Leonard, um, hey, I know on good authority that this movie is going to make it on the blacklist next year. And he doesn't know because Franklin has kept it a secret that he's the guy who started the blacklist. So he's having this muckety muck quote his body of work back to him and goes, oh my God, I think I'm onto something. And notice the difference though. That was not about money. That was about meaning. And meaning precedes money by any stretch of the imagination. And if you organize first on money, you can end up distorting the vision of where you go. If you organize first on meaning, you end up aligning a bunch of things and money typically follows, doesn't guarantee it. I'm not trying to say that, 
but it's much more important to get the basis of the product right, essentially, right? The product, the what is the thing? And then we can figure out what's the business model behind it. That is such an incredibly important lesson for our colleagues and friends in the business world, I think, to absorb. I, I, you know, if the 20th century was all about advancing the intellectual understanding of management and business, the 21st century has to be about advancing a much more whole person understanding about business and management, isn't it? And I think partly what you said here is like how his question shifted the decision criterion from purely a cerebral intellectual, let's do the analytics on is it a market? film more to the heart right like did you love that script right and uh, i'm reminded of uh, you know a moment that the iphone you know a product manager said like it's like steve jobs didn't come to us and tell us that we should design a phone which has like no buttons or this or that he just said come you know design a phone that people fall in love with because you, know, you and i we remember what phones were like in the pre-iphone totally. what have you did you actually interact much with with him yourself um you know i really didn't i he was in the the time i was at apple was when he was on the exodus so you know most in the exodus kind of thing um so yeah. he was gone basically most of the years and uh in that window i had gotten to run this program that was the only part of the business that was actually making money at the time he returns and so because i had been running the little program and i had grown it and was sort of known as the internal advocate my executive team decided that i would be the person who would present the business case to jobs and this is you know enough about business to know there's these funny moments and you know so he's jobs is coming back he's doing the business performance review and basically it's like a job interview for like do we get to stay, right? It's the, here's how much money we're making. Here's why we're viable. Here's why we're important to the company. It's that conversation. So I'm the one who's standing there at 20 something years old presenting. And I have spent the night up, worked on my PowerPoint skills, worked on, you know, the messaging, blah, blah, blah. And I've literally spent the entire night up and I'm there like ready to present. And these are the first words, this guy I've never met, but like, you know, it's kind of a big deal. Walks in the room, important to notice, raggedy ass t-shirt that hadn't been washed in a while, jeans, like baggy jeans, flip-flops that were probably like 20 years old. This was pre the New Balance shoe turtleneck days, but just looking as haggard as you could possibly imagine, walks in, puts his feet on the table. And my slides behind me said something around channel management because that was my charter. And he said, this was a direct first quote, so I'm going to swear now, fuck the channel, who the hell needs the channel? And I remember going, what? I mean, I'm 20 something years old. I have no idea what to do in this moment. So I look over at my colleagues, you know, one of whom is like in his late fifties, my boss. And I'm like, give me a clue what to do. And he was like shrugging right back. So I ended up pretending like the comment didn't happen, which of course, in retrospect, not the world's classiest move. And I went ahead and presented the deck. And then that was basically my first big interaction with him. And of course, I met him later on in the industry and stuff. We had, you know, like circles. And uh, but it was like, oh, not the world's best first impression on either one of our sides. Um, so that's and then I left shortly thereafter, I actually went back to my desk after that presentation. And I had a job offer from a little company called Go Live to join as a startup founder and uh, run their sales marketing and expansion growth. This was even pre-product at this point. And I remember I had said to this guy, Andreas, you know, the CEO was like, yeah, I got a job. I'm really happy. I'm really successful here. No problem. You know, and it was in my inbox though. And it's like, are you going to be open to reconsidering? Will you look at, you know, specific dollars and stuff? And I go back to my desk and I'm like, I would be happy to talk about this job mm -hmm. offer. Because <laughs> I didn't think that meeting had gone that well. And I was like, yeah, I think maybe it's time to go. Well, he did do a lot of streamlining and rationalizing of their product portfolio at that time. I don't know where yours ended up after you left, but uh, there was it a lot It actually became the prototype for the retail store. So oh, the funny part is we had built the 
the closest interaction with customers was our relationship. And anywhere else in the company, no one understood the customer. We actually had the closest proximity. And he kept saying, we got to figure out how to get closer to the customer. And so he actually built on it. And I was like, and, and, you know, like maybe like six months later or something, I ran to the guy who had taken over my job. Patty Wong and uh, at some Apple trade conference kind of thing, because I'm still in the Apple universe, go live, you know, being one of the first WYSIWYG pieces of software, I'm trying to figure out how to get it established in the industry. And so I'm at the trade conference. And uh, I said, I'm like, to this guy, I'm thinking I'm going to have to have a sympathetic conversation with the guy who took my job, right? Like, oh, it must really suck. He's like, no, no, we're following your full business plan, doing every single thing you had laid out, like, it's all good, like, and we're successful, and we got money. And, and I was just like, really, that was not the meeting I was in kind of thing. Yeah. But it turns out he actually figured out how to basically challenge every single person who came and presented. He didn't accept, like he just, he didn't say, yes, I like that, keep that. He basically challenged everything because he wanted to up the performance of the team. So that was his particular management philosophy back then. And then that team ended up continuing on and, and really growing the business. So nice. I just misread the signs, you know, not understanding the politics of the situation. Wow, what a story. I want to come back to your personal journey in uh, just a few minutes. Maybe there's a last piece that we can cover before we get there, which is, um, you know, when you when you take this message, right, which uh, I think in a time like this in particular, where there is so much ferment, there's so much unrest, there's so much uncertainty, any claimant to the idea that we know what the future is like, here's what the future is like, here's my advice for what you need to do to advance yourself as an organization, as a nation, as an individual into that future. I mean, clearly speaking from no real place of solidity of facts and insights, given how much the old order is being dismantled, and we really don't know what the new order is, right? Whether yeah. it's health or social or political or technology or any other disruptors out there. So in a time like this in particular, we have to have to make space for more ideas to proliferate, for insights to come from left field, from just unexpected places, from those beyond our discipline. You know, I'm just seeing even what's happening in the scientific community. You know, we're thinking that science is going to save us. But even science, you know, is ultimately about human attachments and egos and career paths and blind spots. And uh, you look at media, you know, you think like, okay, maybe the media is going to be the fourth estate and it'll save us. I mean, it's a struggle everywhere, you know. So to that end, this idea that we need to take personal ownership and responsibility and create teams and families and organizations where everybody can be sparked and you just never know from where this new society is going to get built. That's how I'm connecting the dots between what you're doing and the larger space or you know that we're thrust into into the world and when you take that message to the organizations and the leaders that you serve in your talks and coaching and workshops uh, how is it landing on the people in positions of power and who if you can share any example is doing a really good job at opening themselves up to more collective intelligence. So when I'm working with people, I think there's two things that are going on. One is, I think you remember we talked about, uh, it's an invitation into a future, but there are just as many people willing to fight for the current status. And I said, yeah, you don't want to spend your time fighting, you know, earlier in this conversation we talked about, we don't want to fight the existing status quo, because that fight is an old fight. Um, and it's an old fight, meaning there are people in power. And if you play on their terms with the existing thing, it's Audrey Lord's, you know, thesis, we will never dismantle the oppressor's house by using his tools, right? The master's house using his tools. We need to find new ways. In fact, when I was working on the book, Power of Loneliness, I actually spent a couple of years in France, writing it, researching it from there. And 
that was mostly personal choice. Had you know the context was interesting. But at the time, I used to walk past the Louvre every day to walk my son to school. So over the Seine River, and then past the Louvre, and then uh, past the Place de Concorde. So really old legacy of kings and you know so on. And I noticed that whenever we talk about change at work today, we use metaphors like castles and money, and so we use old paradigms. And I'm much more fascinated with what are the new paradigms. So a friend of mine and I, in fact, got together in the shadow of the Louvre and had breakfast, and I was sharing the idea of loneliness. And I was saying, wouldn't it be nice? So this is me getting trapped in the metaphor too. Wouldn't it be nice if all the people currently who wanted to create change could get let in the front door? And my metaphor I was using was, uh, we're crawling in the side doors and in the side windows of the castle. And if the door could just open wide, a bunch of us could come and create change. And he said, actually, by the way, just if you hear yourself, you don't want to get into the castle. The castle is dark and dank and doesn't work for the people who live in the castle anyway, because there's a few people, right? Doesn't work for them. But he goes, what you're actually saying is you want to build a whole new way. And so your metaphor is you want to go down the river and build the village. And you want to make a place that thrives, not just for the people who live in the kingdom and then the people who live outside in the grass or, you know, like the surf people. You don't want that. That's not what you're asking for. You're asking for a place where we can belong together in a whole new way, which means new metrics, which means new organizing systems, which means new leadership types, which means wholeness instead of partialness. And he said, just so you hear yourself, that metaphor is old. And it was one of those moments where you got to love friends when they do this to you. You're like, yeah, you're totally right. I'm using an old metaphor too. So for leadership today, one of the things I'm noticing is there is a group of people who are willing to say, I trust my people. I trust that voice. And I want to create more opportunities for different voices to lead us. And then there are the people who are like, I need to know what's happening tomorrow. I need to have a strategic plan. I need to have a five-year plan. I need to hit these certain specific performance numbers. And in order for me to do it, if you can't do it, I'll hire someone who can, right? Which is people as cogs, people as discretionary systems. Those are uh, like two different paths that are going And at all times, a chance to weave between the two is happening. But I'm much more interested in working with leaders who are like saying, let's find a way to build this culture so it's high performance, right? So that I don't just view people as cogs. And then I step on them in order to get to the end goal, which is a very, by the way, unsustainable model, but a way to go if I actually engage my own people, engage the customers, engage the market, we're going to figure it out together, which is operating on the shared intelligence and such capacities, right, of the group. So group power grows. In that old construct, there's only power by a few people, and then everything else is driven by money. In the long run, so this is like, you know, 20 year kind of horizon, one outperforms the other by a long stretch. In the short run, money can reward money, because that's how the financial markets perform. And so I think this is a question of consciousness, to your point, as and why we're actually having this conversation, how do we actually work with the leader? So I'm deeply drawn to the organizations who are doing reinvention using this wholeness kind of construct that each of us has capacity. And if we trust that system, system, we can design new things. Now, one leadership thing that's in place, and it's why I'm working on what I'm working behind the scenes right now, the leadership construct that's in place. So even if a leader knows that they need to do a different kind of leadership construct, one that engages and enables versus directs people to do and t- you know exactly what they're told to do, even if they know that, like they know it in their own heart, they're knowing this, 
everything they're taught and told, and you and I know this because we understand business school models, everything they're taught and told treats people, labor as an activity or a resource, tossable and specific to can they do X at this point. We have yet to create labor as love as its own metric, labor as meaning, labor as capacity. And that new metric needs to both be defined and then instituted. And that's the work I'm starting to do behind the scenes to figure out how to both shape that code, create those new metrics so that we can actually figure out how to get the alignment between what a leader knows they need to do and what they're then rewarded to do. Well, that sounds like a really powerful multiplier of, um, you know, of this idea of loneliness, you know, at a more scaled level. And uh, I, you know, my prayers are with you that you succeed in creating and innovating, you know, at scale in a way that uh, helps us see how to systematize and uh, create at a more organizational level, some of these uh, personal, otherwise hungers and aspirations, right? Let's move into your personal story. You come across as somebody who's incredibly thoughtful. You pause and take ownership over every word that you express. You're a wonderfully gifted storyteller. You speak from a deeply felt place. And, you know, the sense one gets is that this has been a lot of hard work where you have really toiled, perhaps in your heart and your mind, churned the ether to really make sense of your world and put into words things that have probably been getting stirred from within. That's unique. That's powerful. That itself is a lived example of some of your, I think, own teachings and ideas. And I love that. You know, I love this idea of living the truth, not just teaching the truth. And so where does that? power come from? And could you take us back to your roots? Um, what was it like growing up as Nilofer? A couple of pivotal moments. I've, I've been struck by hearing you in a couple of your videos talk about one or two of them. Hopefully we'll discover even more today, but even just those one or two are incredibly instructive, I think, for everyone. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your personal journey. Just this morning on Instagram, a friend of mine who happens to be a lawyer shared a story. Her son turns four and she said when she was raised, she was raised with love, love in such a deep way to know her own worth. And that no matter what anybody would say or do, that filled her and it made her capable of withstanding so much. And and she was hoping to pass that on with her son. That was just a beautiful little Instagram story I was reading this morning. And I thought, I'm so sad that I didn't have that inheritance. I did not have somebody fighting for me. My mother and father divorced when I was two and a half years old. I didn't know my father. I never even saw him again until I was like 12. And I lived with my aunt and uncle. My aunt, in fact, just died of COVID um, during this last year. But she was like a second mom to me. And so in the way that she loved me, she absolutely loved me. But there's something about knowing that your mom left you that forever changes you, that she left you, even if she left for all the right reasons, right? So, uh, you know, that she came to America to see if she could, back in India, if she had stayed, there's no way she could have raised us. And uh, as a divorcee in India, it was a stigma. And so she came to America hoping to, you know, outrun that stigma. And she got degree as a respiratory therapist. She raised her children on a single mother's income, like, you know, unheard of, right? And all that. So in that way, she loved, she provided, but she didn't know how to provide safety. And she certainly didn't understand how to value a girl, a Muslim girl as equal to a Muslim boy. And so my job was to grow up and be a good, dutiful daughter who cooked really well and who married really well and provided for her. And so maybe one of the stories that you're talking about is the story of an arranged marriage. I was supposed to get an arranged marriage. And, and by the way, I'd completely signed up to it. Tendra, right? So I am a very dutiful child, actually, at some level. And I was like, sure, of course, I'm gonna, you know, marry well, so that my mother's provided for, of course, I am. And but by the way, can I also get an education? And because I had always just loved learning, and I couldn't imagine not getting an education. It was just like a all my friends were going off to get 
degrees. And um, and so unbeknownst to my family, I had actually applied for and gotten into a university, you know, filled out the paperwork for the one year extension and was sort of hoping that somehow I could make these two parts of me, this Western part that grew up with the idea that girls could get an education and go off and do things. And this very traditional family part, which was like, you're going to provide for your mom. And, and I was somehow figuring out how to like integrate those two things. Like if I could just make it come together in this one particular way that I can do everything. And my mother arranged a a marriage with a very, very wealthy man. And as a result, he had like a house cleaner and a nanny and, you know, stuff because he had already been married before. Um, and he had a child from his first marriage and his wife had died. And so, so I was like, this is perfect. Cause like, it's not like he needs me to take care of the house or anything. It's perfect. So yes, I'm in for the marriage. And I had asked my uncle who was doing all of our negotiations to do this thing. And, uh, I got home one day and everybody's having that, you know, the sort of like the family aunties are all at the house. It's, it would not be the formal Nika, but sort of the, the earlier thing that happens. And, uh, and they're all celebrating. And I'm like, so did somebody get the guy to say I'm going to college? And no one, my, my uncle's like, well, your mom wouldn't let me ask. So I'm like, dude, like if I lose the year, because I mean, like, you know, then I'd have to build a relationship with this guy before I could ask the guy. And so I'm like, can someone just ask the guy, you know, and, and of course, in Indian culture, like I wasn't allowed to talk to the guy. So this all happens. I, I wait till everybody's gone, because I'm such a respectful daughter, right? I wait till everybody's gone. Then I tell my mom, mom, you know, like, if you could please just ask him, I'm sure he'll say yes. And so this is not like, it's not a debate. It's just a tee it up, you know, and I even said, like, if he says no, then I'll live with that decision. My mother refuses to do this because she doesn't want to put into jeopardy what she has just arranged, which is a house. She's gotten a house out of the deal and she fully paid off house. And she really wanted that for her own like financial security. So I do this thing, which I think nothing of at the time. And this is where I don't know what I was thinking really, because I can't like retrace just how crazy I must have been. But I was like, well, then I'll move out. And I now this is the Western side of my personality. And, and you can tell exactly who I am by this one story. So I get to the point where I go, well, I'm the product. If I'm the product, you can't make this deal without me. So I have some pull in this thing. And you can just do this ask. If you do the ask and he still says no, I'll still go through with the deal. But since I'm the product, I ought to be able to ask for this one thing. Can you imagine referring to yourself, by the way, as a product, just if you just think about that as a story, but I am such a marketing person, like I was from the very beginning, I think a part of me always understood marketing. So I was like, if I'm the product, I can make the deal. So then I tell my mother this, my mother doesn't listen to me at all. So in order to prove to her that I'm the product, I take an old like grocery box that you know doesn't even have a lid. And I walk to my bedroom and she's following me because now I've engaged her in this conversation. And I put, I don't know, like seven books or 10 books, or, like some ridiculous amount of books, no toothbrush, one outfit to prove to her I'm not coming home time and leave, walk out the door. And I'm convinced she's going to stop me at the door. She doesn't stop me at the door. I'm convinced she's going to stop me at the driveway. She doesn't stop me at the driveway. I'm convinced as I'm like walking down the street, she's just going to follow me in the car. A couple of days later, I'm ejected from the family. I have no place to live. I have no money to my name because every dollar I'd ever earned, I'd given to her and no bank account, my name, nothing. And I'm like, holy shit. So that's my inheritance. It's a certain amount of stubbornness. <laughs> And uh, somebody who really saw me as a product and wanted me to do exactly what she wanted me to do and to live that conformity, to belong in that very specific way, not as oneself, but in a way that is, you know, saw me as the, the daughter, a Muslim daughter whose job was to marry well. And I think sometimes when I notice issues about, let's say, race or gender dynamics or whatever, it's because I learned it at a really deep, deep level, what it is to be unseen, so much so that I accepted the paradigm 
and describe myself as a product. It's almost unthinkable what the uh, moment must have meant, um, the choices that you were making, uh, and yeah, and, and the uncertainty and unknownness of the future that you allowed yourself to walk into. And yet it seems like it was almost as though a moment where life was um, awakening something within you. And it seems like it's interesting because what if the family had gone ahead and asked him that? Yeah. What if he said, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, she's going to do all of these things at home and everything else, but I'm happy as a side thing or something like that. You know, I wonder if that would have gotten you to your fullest potential the way you have since. Right. So this is like where every story, it shapes you and it is just your story and you get to decide what meaning you ascribe to that story. So absolutely, you know, 10 years ago, I quit my company for entirely personal reasons. Every now and then I think about those reasons and think, and I don't talk about them because they're related to my son. So I, I, I don't think it's my story to tell 100%. And I sit there and go, I really resent that. I resent that all these things had to happen that I had to shut down my firm and so on. And every now and then I get kind of like, oh, this doesn't seem fair, right? Part of me wants something different. And then I'm like, yeah, but would I be sitting where I am today if I hadn't stopped consulting? So one reason I think I have such a distinctly powerful voice in the business world is I'm not selling anyone anything, right? So in consulting or when you're working for a firm, you have to think who is writing your paycheck. You have to really calculate that. And you can't say everything that you might want to say, but sitting out here much more independently, I'm like, yeah, that isn't that isn't going to work over there. Let me tell you why, you know, and, I, and it gives you a joyfulness to be able to say, let me point out what no one else is willing to say. And so that then becomes that form of authority in its own way. And, and I'm using authority very specifically because you get to author the story in a whole other way. And so if it's a form of authority, then you just get to go, okay, well, that is what it is. And then what does that lead to? Well, I, I want to use that then as a way to just kind of help everyone see the possibilities in a door that is slammed shut and not a door that is like half open, half closed, and you are able to squeak your way in. But like a door, when it is completely slammed shut, you hit a dead end. Sometimes it is um, life just inviting you to look in another direction and mm -hmm. maybe life knows more than you how luminous the possibilities are, you know, where it's asking you to take, not to get distracted by this door at all, right? And now you've shared two of those instances in your life, in your teenage years, and then more recently as well. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. How beautiful. How beautiful. Um, let me invite us maybe to answer one question from Raza. He's talking about how when you take your model, how does that apply to, you know, these challenges that we are facing in society today where we are so riven, right, and separated by social and emotional and political kind of factors. Uh, the Palestine-Israel conflict, uh, this whole area of empowering natives, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, gender equality, etc. Would your model help illuminate a little bit like possibilities for how to bring more clarity, closure, collaboration in these in these areas? Absolutely. And I think, um, by the way, I chose to feature Black Lives Matter in the books. So there's a beautiful story there. So here's the thing, it's already working. The group of people who coined the term Black Lives Matter and the story and the genesis of that, born of pain, in fact, I think this year is the eight year anniversary, Trayvon murderer being released and with no repercussions. I think it's coming up in a month or something. It's, it's soon. And, and so eight years from that moment, uh, somebody typing on Facebook, you know, our lives matter, Black Lives Matter. There's been a huge awakening, reckoning, people recording videos for those of us who, you know, decided to watch the eight minute trauma of watching someone be killed in front of our eyes. And then to watch at the end of that video, I never watched it to the very end. Only in the trial recently did I hear what the actual end of the videotape was, which was when he was done killing after eight minutes and 40 seconds, done killing someone, he says, I'm done here. 
And that evolution of us understanding something that that group of people has, by the way, they understand it themselves. It's those of us who are now waking up to that, that is driven off of the work that of mobilizing, organizing work that that group has been doing for pre-Black Lives Matter and since then. And so I think it is already in possibility. There are people who are already working on gender equity issues, people who are working on pay equity issues, etc. We get distracted. The, the, the commentary I make sometimes is we get distracted by those people who, who use all the lingo but don't actually want change. So it's the lean in thing that it was was quite a distraction. When lean in came in, I remember thinking and reading the construct and saying, you know, by the way, this offers no real solutions that in fact ask the group that's being oppressed to stop being oppressed. And I'm like, that will actually never work. Anybody hear that? And I remember because I was part of a listserv of 500 women entrepreneurs and executives and I got poo-pooed. And I was like, yeah, that's actually going to create a ton more harm. And that group, it turns out the leaders of that group are getting paid by Sandberg to actually promote the book. And I was like, oh, money, money over meaning. And they got paid and they wanted the money. And so they told everyone who was pushing back that no, 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 it's fine. And, and later on, I was like, oh my God. Oh, that makes sense they were paid. So I think there are people who are absolutely already doing the work. And then the question is, if that's something that matters to you, how do you join, right? So how do you listen to that? And then for those people who, you know, want to preserve the status quo, there's, there's tons of money. By the way, if you were a business today, wouldn't you rather treat someone like a cog so that you can pay them nine bucks an hour and dispose of them if they're not doing what you need, rather than pay them what they're actually worth, which is at least 15, if not more, and actually have a dialogue with people to create work that actually works for them? Which one would you rather choose if you were the boss? and you liked being in charge. Seems pretty obvious. It's the same reason the British colonized a bunch of places. They could go and take all the product. Of course you would. Like if you could take all the spices out of India and get the best of that and suppress an entire group of people, yay for you. So I get that there's a group of people who want it and then there's the rest of us who can mobilize and organize. And so I think the big thing I'm trying to say is for those of us who are participating in systems to go, this isn't really working. And how do I become part of the change? That's the challenge. Not to accept what we're taught and told just because it is the majority. It doesn't stay majority. Apartheid was a majority for a long time too. British colonizing India was a you know thing. Change happens when some of us go, we deserve better. So powerful. Thank you, Nilfa. Maybe we can just end with a reflection from you coming back to the personal space. As to where you draw your bedrocks from, you know, your bedrock beliefs, your convictions. You mentioned you grew up in a Muslim family. You know, you also rebelled against one of the customs they had at that point about the role of women. So that faith uh, continued to stay on as a source of insight and inspiration guidance for you. Have you expanded frontiers, you know, beyond that as well? Or, you know, or, or where is it that you, what is your faith? I just spent five days in silence at a monk's retreat in uh, Big Sur. And I go there because this place holds holy place at the edge of the world, edge of the continent. There's the Pacific Ocean. And literally, it's a place where the roads keep falling apart, like every few years, like we can't get to the place because the roads have fallen apart. So it is literally a place of transformation where the roads can't even stay together long enough for us to get there. And then the monks retreat is two miles up a hill, straight up kind of thing. And so it's this beautiful visual representation, geographic representation of transformation. And I go there in pure silence. And I was just telling a friend of mine, it was five days was the longest I've ever done silence. And uh, um, I said, a, a part of me goes there so that I can hear where my own life's calling is taking, right? So I can stop the cacophony of my own like noise in my own head of like, oh, I should do this and I should do that and I'm not making money or whatever to be like, what is it? that my own life's purpose can serve. And then reading and reassimilating and, and just listening for guidance on what is it that's even possible. 
and then to work from that place of inner faith, inner calm. And I do that work. I, I make a distinction between faith and religion, right? Religion is the mechanisms uh, that different groups have put together to kind of almost ritualize, right? Faith. Um, but faith is this ultimate belief that there is a reason that you are here, a reason that you have value to offer, that each of us has that value. That's a faithfulness. And that somehow, even if you cannot see what the next step is, even if you cannot plan what the next step is, there is a logical next step that will help you manifest yourself. And uh, for me, probably the one story I tell myself more than any other story is my grandfather named me. Um, he named me Nilofar translates to water lily. And it, when I was maybe six or seven, maybe eight, I remember exactly where I was, but I don't remember how old I was. He told me the story of how he named me and why he named me what he did. And he said, lotuses grow in mud. And he says, but they always grow towards the light, no matter how dark the water they grow towards the light. And I returned to that metaphor in my heart as a is this the light? And that's kind of just how I navigate my own life. And I can't hear that light when I'm hearing about money, or I'm hearing about productization or all these other things, but I can hear it in the silence. And so I've become more and more clear about how to draw from that well and go back to that well so that it fuels all my work. Wow, that sounds so special. So special. I, I didn't realize that's what Nilofar meant. And, um, you know, we have only one child when she was going to be born. We didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl. We hadn't really chosen to, to know. We were actually in your neighborhood we used to live in Palo Alto at that time so I still remember going to the hospital when my wife was in labor and we had already known for a while what we would name the child if it was a daughter but we still didn't know what we would name you know the child if it was a boy and so we were still debating the name as my wife is actually starting to be in labor and she ends up at the hospital by the evening the baby is delivered and it's a daughter <laughs> it's as though nature knew that it had to be a daughter so had aligned us we had convinced ourselves we were going to name a Minalini. and Minalini means lotus for very similar yeah. reasons to what you just shared so yeah. Right. Yeah, that's been her name so cool inheritance, right we, we we have an inheritance that we pass on and then we have the imagination that pulls us forward and i i consider your question about faith more about how do you allow imagination to be faithful yeah and not driven by your ego but driven by your faith so Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that piece with us, including that time to, uh, close to those monks. This has been so joyful, so wonderful. I'm, I'm really grateful for all that you have shared. Thank you so much. First and foremost, the wonderful work you're doing for giving so generously of your time and your spirit today to us and for living the life that you're leading. It is so incredibly inspiring and can have so many lessons and inspirations here for so many of us. I hope that uh, the world continues to give you more and more platforms through which to propagate these ideas and your personal journey because it is so important at a time like this for for us to hear hear your voice thank you so much nilofer it has been great to have you and godspeed wish you all the best thank you